Left libertarianism, um, libertarian socialism, is the idea that you want to maximize freedom for people in general, so maximizing of liberty, that's the libertarian part of it. And the socialist part of it is explaining that the best way to do that is with traditionally socialist structures um, rather than more capitalist structures. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I'm talking to Swans, the VP of Engineering, Ben DeWall. Now, I've been following Ben on Twitter for quite some time. I've been following some of his tweets and seeing him jump into various disagreements or arguments. I've quite enjoyed his takes. I've quite enjoyed some of the things he said. Not everything, don't agree with everything he said, but there was enough in there for me to want to get him on the show and talk about these things. Now, Ben is a libertarian socialist, which I know can trigger some people. It can seem contradictory to Bitcoin. But at the same time, I think Bitcoin is made up of a bunch of different people. So I'm trying to talk to as many people as I can with a wide range of set of perspectives. I've previously spoken to Ben Ark about left libertarianism. So I asked Ben to come on the show. He agreed to come to Bedford. And yeah, we we got into this. Now, I did struggle with some of his arguments. You'll hear that during the show. But then I struggle with some of the arguments across a range of topics and a range of different people. So no harm done there. But yes, it was a valuable discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Anyway, if you've got any questions about this or the show and you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Ben, how are you, man? I'm good. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you're the first guest in the Bedford studio. Yep. So nice place. <laughs> thank you for coming out to do this. Um, uh, wanted to talk to you for a while, as you know. Uh, I really enjoyed your Twitter. Uh, yours is one of the ones I look forward to most because as uh, discussions, debates, arguments happen, I see you often come in with a rational perspective, often one that's quite unique. I mean, I reached out to you because of that. Yep. yep. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about. But Danny, um, we're not starting where I wanted to start because Danny told me something. We just made a show with Sahil from uh, Unchained Capital, yep. whose big thing is uh, get on zero. Right? So a lot of yep. Bitcoiners, we say get off zero, you know, mm-hmm. get your first bit of Bitcoin. But his whole thing is get on zero. And I didn't know, but you've been living on Bitcoin. Yep. Yep. Since uh, early 2017. Okay. Um, so I can actually kind of give a little bit of the history there. In uh, It was around 2010, I first discovered Bitcoin, ignored it for a year, like a lot of people did. 2011, kind of just started getting back into it. You know, buy a bit, use it for something, buy a bit, use it for something. So, you know, basically on zero Bitcoin <laughs> the whole time there. Around 2013, I started doing what everyone was doing at the time, spend and replace. So that was the big thing on uh, Reddit at the time, you know, you should spend and replace. So hold some Bitcoin. If you spend it, replace it so you've still got the same amount of Bitcoin. Okay. But I kind of stopped and thought to myself, what does that actually mean? If I'm doing spend and replace, what that really means is I value Bitcoin more than I value fiat. Why do I value Bitcoin more than fiat? Well, okay, there's all these obvious reasons, um, but... If I'm doing that, why am I still holding fiat at all? What's the point in holding fiat? You know, um, I can spend Bitcoin, so why not simply entirely hold Bitcoin? The opportunity cost of spending Bitcoin is the same as the opportunity cost of holding um, holding fiat that you could have exchanged for Bitcoin, but didn't. Well, I mean, I would love to do the same, but I always have that fear of, well, two fears. One of timing everything wrong. And, uh, you know, if I went all in on Bitcoin, I mean, now's not a bad time. Yeah. But what if something happened and we halved? I'm like, oh, fuck. You know, it, it requires, 
for it to be an economically good decision, it requires some uptime as well. But the other one is like some catastrophic loss. They're the two things that put me off. So catastrophic loss is the only one which worries me a little bit, and I'm not that worried. I, I think Bitcoin is beyond the point that catastrophic loss is going to happen. I think you know it will still have big ups and downs, but catastrophic loss, I, I just consider that so unlikely, it's a risk I'm willing to take. Um, Some people have a personal risk of a catastrophic loss through stupidity. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, by catastrophic loss, there I meant more Bitcoin failure. Yeah. You know, I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, and as for the ups and downs, um, that's more a case of, stop measuring your worth in fiat and you don't notice them as much. You know, I get paid a salary in U denominated in US dollars, but paid in Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin goes down in fiat terms, my salary or my costs go higher. My salary goes higher by the same amount. So, you know, let's just say I spend you know, 80% of my salary on living costs. I save 20%, regardless of whether that's um, you know, whether it turns out to be you know a million sats or ten million sats, I'm saving twenty percent of my income. Um, so going down actually just means my savings are going up. Have you ever thought of asking if you can have your salary denominated in sats? Uh, uh, there's no way any company I know would pay that because you know Bitcoin ten x is from now. I'm bankrupting the company. So uh, well, yeah, but do you know what yeah. you could do? You could offer it now with a slight discount, say ten percent. <laughs> And then when it does that 10x, you say, well, we'll negotiate. I could talk to them about it. And <laughs> so aside from my main job as a VP of engineering at Swan, um, I also do run a small consulting company. Um, I don't do a lot of it now because I'm focused mostly on Swan. Um, but when I write an invoice for Bitcoin or consulting, um, I write it denominated in sats. So I charge 500,000 sats an hour. Um, okay. And that's that's it. You know, Bitcoin goes up. In fiat terms, I'm making more in fiat terms. Bitcoin goes down in fiat terms, I'm making less in fiat terms. I don't care. I'm charging 500,000 sats an hour. I might re-denominate, I might change that. Um, you know, if Bitcoin, for example, does go up 10 times, I might change my hourly rate to 50,000 sats. But, you know, I'm not going to be changing it on a daily basis. Did you just do the conversion rate? Yeah. I knew you were doing that. that. <laughs> I knew that. I, as soon as you said that, I heard tap, tap, tap. What I'm so it? bad at sats. I'm so bad at sats. Well, there's 100 million, so it's... I'm having to capture, so this is going to take. So two two hundredth of twenty three and a half thousand dollars, I think. Am I right there? Something like that. Yeah, I could basically operate the project Hail Mary. <laughs> <laughs> We've been both been uh, well. Danny's finished it. Been reading this book, uh, Project Hail Mary. Do mm -hmm. you know it? I don't know it. No, it's by the same guy. I did the Martian okay. Andy Weir? I think he's called. Andy Weir. Yeah, and it's um, it's about this uh, guy's basically gone to try and save the earth i'm going to try and tell you as much without giving too much away but he ends up uh piloting this ship uh into space but they they do a lot of math and science in it during it and right. it's just a really well a bit like the martian really because remember he says I, i'm gonna have to science the shit out of this yeah. it's, it's a bit similar um so that was a little in joke for me and daniel over there <laughs> um okay so what, what have you learned from it like what what a if you were to say to somebody you know, or somebody was come to you, I say, you know, Ben, I'm going to do the same. I'm going to go all in Bitcoin. What are what are the things you've learned? The most important lessons that you can you know, pass across so people don't yeah. screw up their life. Um, only do it if you have enough savings already that you basically have a buffer for those downtimes. Because um, you know, you need to be able to handle the idea that you know, if Bitcoin were to drop fifty percent, it means basically your prices of everything around you denominated in sats doubles. Um, and if you don't have some kind of buffer for that you're kind of screwed. Um, 
But then the second thing is more of the mindset thing. Stop thinking in terms of the fiat value of your savings because that is essentially irrelevant at that point. Um, you know, you're, as long as you've got those savings there and those savings are going up every month, why should you care how much you know, the relative value was of your income versus your uh, expenses? You know, as long as you're, you're spending less than you're earning, you know, you're saving money and that's, those savings go up every month. That was what Sahil said, didn't he? Exactly. Yeah. Um, do you find yourself... Well, you can't not ever think in fiat terms because everywhere you go, things are pretty much priced in fiat. So, yes, but it probably helps that I deal with so many different fiats at the, t- at the moment. You know, I'm paid denominated in US dollars. I live in Germany where most things around me are in euro. I'm very close to the Czech border where everything is in Czech crowns. And some things I pay with an Australian credit card denominated in Australian dollars <laughs> so that I can pay it off using living room of Satoshi... Um, using Bitcoin. So basically, you know, I've got um, US dollars, Euro, Czech crowns, and Australian dollars as kind of these variable things all around. Bitcoin is the only stable thing that I see that crosses everything for me. So basically, Bitcoin is, you know, the stable thing and all of these other currencies or whatever they are are just fluctuating around it. So has it is it worked out economically? Was it the right decision? Definitely, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I started doing it in early, early 2017, just before the big run up in value. So yeah. Early 2017, what we were at? We were at like 1,000 1, in Some, January or February? Something like that. Okay. So you built your buffer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's better timing than Sahil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do, do you uh, do you have like an app on your phone to constantly check prices? So you know what you're paying? Or? Um, not so much. I just kind of I, I generally have a feel for it. So you know, um, I because I'm kind of used to it now. Um, uh, I know how much things cost in sets, and sure, sometimes it goes up, and then I'm like, oh, okay, I guess the value of Bitcoin went down a bit. Um, and usually, I'm not paying Bitcoin directly. So there are a few places around me I can use Bitcoin directly, but obviously, most places still don't take Bitcoin. I can't go to the supermarket and buy stuff with Bitcoin. So I go to the supermarket, I buy stuff um, using, for example, that Australian credit card I mentioned, and then I pay it off using Bitcoin. Is your wife fully on board with this? Um, yeah, she... Actually, she is on board with the idea that I do that. She doesn't, um, <laughs> she doesn't. feel like that's something she needs to get that involved in. Basically, <laughs> it also helps she doesn't work. She's a you know full-time stay-at-home mother, um, and you know, she's concentrating on raising the kids and everything, and money is basically my responsibility in the family. <laughs> yeah. It is tempting. It is. My wife's not going to go for You're, it. She's definitely not going to go for it. I don't have a wife, so... <laughs> But I don't think Emma would let me go for it either. <laughs> um, all right, man. Well, listen, look, uh, there's other stuff I want to get into with you. Absolutely. The, the, the area of uh, Bitcoin I find the most interesting has never really been the technology, which I think people know. One, I, just, I don't get it. And I, I think uh, there's other people who are more naturally drawn to it and understand it better. Uh, I'm always interested in the social side, the governance side, how people see the world, especially in the Bitcoin world where we have lots of different competing ideologies that come together and clash at times. Yeah. Um, so I've al- I'm always wanted to meet as many people as possible and understand you know, what they think and why they think it. So it's similar with you. I, I want to get into your kind of philosophy, Ben, as a, uh, I've got it here, as a classical anarchist, yep. libertarian socialist, yep. essentially <laughs> a left libertarian. Yep. Uh, there's a lot in that. Come on, there explain is. <laughs> this all to me. Like, what's your viewpoint? Where does it come from? How do you see the world? All right. So, yeah, that's you know, that's the million dollar question. That's and it's a big one as well. It's a really complex question. So I think you know, we can discuss different aspects, discuss kind of around it. Um, but essentially, 
um, left libertarianism, um, libertarian socialism, is the idea that you want to maximize freedom um, for people in general. So maximizing of liberty, that's the libertarian part of it. Um, and the socialist part of it is explaining that the best way to do that is with traditionally socialist structures um, rather than more capitalist structures. So um, capitalism and socialism are not the only two ways to manage um, societies. You know, there are other concepts, but one of the best ways to understand socialism in today's world is to kind of contrast it to capitalism in today's world. So one of the biggest problems um, that socialists in general see with uh, capitalism is um, the authority going to those who have capital. You know, if you look at the big corporations, they can control things far more effectively than most governments can. Um, they have the power to essentially influence how people live their lives. That's um, a lot of people will complain and say, you know, oh, you're talking about crony capitalism. I don't see a distinction. I think capitalism inevitably leads to crony capitalism, um, simply you know, by what it is. Um, if you give power to those who have capital, then you no longer have a truly free society. You no longer have people having freedom. Um, the freedom. Do you, to, sorry, do you, do you give power to them or do you concede power to them? Um, Good. Yeah, actually, that's a good way to frame it. I would say, yeah, you concede power to them um, in a capitalist system. You, but you, after a while, no longer have a choice. If you imagine a, um, you know, a poor person born in even a nice country. So imagine the United States, for example, and a per poor person born in some horrible little town in the middle of nowhere, US. Not a lot of opportunities. You know, they are not going to end up going and working for NASA and being a rocket scientist because they don't get the education in that little town. You know, their parents don't get the appropriate work in that little town. It's not the case that you can always just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and be anything you want to be. That classic American dream is a lie. You know, that doesn't exist. Um, and socialism recognizes that. So what socialism is essentially largely about, um, you know, the classical definition of it is uh, that the means of production, distribution and exchange are owned by the people and not by, um, you know, uh, a centralised entity such as a corporation. Um, and how that usually manifests is in um, essentially working structures. So rather than having, you know, a corporation, um, which is this entity that uh, people are working for, you just have people coming together and working together in order to achieve goals. And that can be in a business-like structure. You know, you can have things like worker cooperatives, which are people coming together and we all own the business that we are working towards and we all get the profits from that business. Rather than I am the person who owns the business and I will pay you this amount regardless of how well the business is doing. Maybe you can ask for a raise at some point, but you know, that's my decision as the boss. That's the capitalist way of doing things. Can, can you not have a mix of the two? You can, but largely it's a matter of how the society is structured. And that's where a lot of arguments actually come in with libertarian socialists um, is how much do we want to say we recognize or don't recognize some of these kinds of things. Um, so I one thing I always like equating it to is um, you know, uh, in, in an anarcho-capitalist worldview, you can have a contract which says, okay, I, you know, I freely signed this contract to go work for these people. Okay, can I freely sign a contract to be a slave to somebody else? Or is that not okay? You know, is that something we would say, okay, even though there's a contract, we don't recognize that because we do not consider slavery acceptable. In the same way, 
I would say a employment contract is something I do not consider acceptable because you're basically making yourself a wage slave to that company. Okay, right. Lots to get into here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> are you basically a commie? <laughs> Short answer, no, because communists are generally against money. And I think markets are one of the best ways to um, sort out the value of things in society. So I'm very much in favor of markets, very much uh, an, a free market advocate. Um, although in um, left libertarianism, we often use the term freed markets rather than free markets um, to imply kind of the difference that um, the markets are currently controlled and we wish to free them. We, we wish them to be freed okay. rather than just free. Okay, so we have a company. Yep. There's 100 employees. And uh, you advocate for the workers owning the means of production. Is it an equal share? Or is there structure behind that? Is there uh, consideration given for how long you've been at the company? How senior your role is? That depends very much on the individual organizations. In a small worker cooperative, usually not, because um, it's just people coming together, for example, to sell fruit at a market, you know, and they are all really equals. Yeah, I, I a, get that. I'm yeah. thinking... In a larger organization, yes, there would generally be some kind of structure, and it would be structure that would be agreed by the people. And again, exactly how that is done is a case-by-case -case basis. And, you know, um, I'm not going to sit here and claim to have all the answers. One of the big things about the libertarian side of libertarian socialism is you know, if I were to come and say, here's all the answers, this is exactly how society should be, then basically I'm now a dictator. I'm dictating this is how society should be. And I don't have all the answers. I don't think anyone does. Um, so you aim to work towards the most equitable um, situation, even if you don't know what that's going to eventually look like. So how, how do you actually make the steps to get towards that? Do you try and carve that out within the structure we've already had? Do we try and encourage companies to think along the lines of consideration for the employees? I mean, a good example in the UK, you would think of, there's a company called, you, you must know of John Lewis. Uh, the name rings a bell. It's, um, it's a department store. It's, yeah, it's a department store. Right. They've got yeah, hundreds yeah. around the country. But aren't they primarily owned by the staff? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, look it up. There is a structure in place. Mm -hmm. Yes, they have shareholders. Yes, they have directors who are paid lots and lots of money. But I'm pretty sure all the staff are members. But is that what we're essentially saying? Rather than trying to create an entire new society where every company yeah. is forced via some kind of regulation to do this, it's more an encouragement that this is a, the right thing to do. That's more my preferred method, yes. Um, but, you know, there are plenty of people who agree with me politically who would have other methods, you know, like, um, you know, revolution, violent anarchy, that kind of thing. Um, I don't advocate for that. I think that's a bad way to go about it. I think you're more likely to end up with uh, despotism, you know, people basically seizing power and then controlling things in a far less free um, situation when you do that. Um, but that said, we do have examples in the real world of societies which had crumbled so much that they could then rebuild themselves um, in a more libertarian socialist kind of way. Um, one of the good ones there as an example is Rojava. That's um, the northeastern Syria administrative region. Um, so the war in Syria basically, you know, completely decimated everything. And about 10 years ago, Rojava established itself as a libertarian socialist state, um, independent of Syria from their perspective. 
So far, I think nobody recognizes them other than Catalonia, which also nobody recognizes as an independent yeah. state. So, okay. <laughs> but um, you know, they are self-administering and they are a libertarian socialist society. They're definitely not perfect. Um, they've definitely done things which are not in line with libertarian socialist ideals. Such as? Um, there was a few years ago um, some some concerns from humanitarian groups about um, uh, ch children being used in the army there. Um, there were some concerns about uh, treatment of prisoners. But that said, unlike pretty much everything else in that part of the world, you know, they've abolished the death penalty. There are rights for prisoners treated how they should be treated. Um, the feminism is a part of the platform of the um, you know group who are organising. I'm not going to even call them a government because yeah, it's libertarian socialism. Um, so yeah, the group who are organising have um, you know consider feminism a strong part of the system. So you know they are, I would say, better politically than pretty much everything else around them. But if they're not government, what are they? How and do they self-organize? I would call them an organizing group. Um, and yeah, but isn't that what government government is? To an extent. Um, so that's where you actually have to come into the question of yeah, what is government, and what even is a society? And that you know, you're getting into kind of some deep philosophical things there. You know, we are human beings. We're just an advanced ape sitting on a rock spinning around the sun. Um, you know, and we make up these ideas like government and corporations and borders and that sort of thing. And these that's not a bad thing to make up. It's help, it helps us organize. It helps us give a better world. But sometimes we make up things which are suboptimal. And government is one of those things where perhaps it started off as these are the people who we should get to help us organize and make some decisions. But it's largely turned into these are the people who make the rules that we have to follow. Yes. And that's a problem. <laughs> Did you find anything? Yeah, it's owned by a trust on behalf of its employees and bonuses paid out on the profits. Yeah. Yep. So it can happen. It, absolutely. And, you know, there are, um, so unions are often, often also seen as a uh, example of an attempt to move towards more libertarian socialist ideals within a capitalist society. Are you pro-union? Um, only insofar as I think in, in the societies that we live in that have unions, yes, be, but I think those societies are fundamentally broken. And if we the better way than having unions is to fix the society. So, you know, I consider unions a good band-aid in a bad situation, but in a well-functioning society, we wouldn't need them. So are you, are you kind of aligned with the anarchists from sort of the Thatcher era? Yeah, yeah. I would say most anarchists from that era probably are more um, libertarian socialist, yeah. Is any amount of government useful? Um, because I know from... You know, meeting so many people on this podcast, there are a range of views. There are libertarians who believe in no government and there are libertarians who believe in minimal government or small government. And um, so that there is that range that exists. Uh, I would say I largely agree with the majority of what libertarians say, but I don't agree with no government. Mm -hmm. I, think, I, I think I almost think that governments are like a natural monopoly that that will always happen. We always will have structure. So, yeah, I think that's actually, again, then coming back to the question of what is government. So do you need a group of people who help organize everything? I think, yes. Do you need a group of people who define laws? No. I think laws can be defined by the collective as a whole and then organized by that organizing group who are very easy to change out. But, um, again, it's one of those 
uh, you know, I do have to say I don't know a lot to some of these questions because you know I don't know what the future looks like and I don't know how things would progress as we move more in that direction. Maybe at some point we would get to a point where we could say, hey, look, government actually isn't necessary at all. We can get rid of them. Or maybe we'd get to a point where we say, okay, we actually need to have these particular structures here, which are fulfilling some of the things that governments used to do, but um, you know, not all. So it, it, it really is an open um, question. Have you not considered moving out to this place in Syria? Uh, no, because it's Syria. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I find these topics really interesting, but I wonder if often we're just discussing theories that, that are too, they're too far from reality to actually happen. So, yes, but that's why you do it as a stepwise approach. Um, so a lot of people I've noticed, especially on Twitter, they like to uh, you know, um, counter me by saying, I'm imagining a utopia. No, I'm not imagining any particular world, but they've got, they've kind of got this idea in their head that I've got this perfect utopia that I've imagined and you know everyone has to cooperate and be nice with each other and we don't need government because everyone's cooperating and being happy. That's ridiculous. Yeah, um, I agree. You know, I, I don't think that. I've never thought that. And you know, to, to me, that's almost like just this pointless straw man argument that uh, you know I can dismiss. But um, I don't have this end goal in mind. So rather than saying, um, you know, I'm imagining some kind of world which is so abstract or whatever, I would rather actually say, let's focus on the things right now that we can move towards more libertarian socialism rather than saying, you know, here's an end goal that we have to try to get to. So it's, uh, you know, recognize um, hierarchies that needn't exist and then get rid of them. Um, I hope to never again have an employment contract, for example. Right now, my contract with Swan is as a contractor. And to me, that's a much more libertarian socialist approach because, you know, I am on equal terms with them. They're not... Um, directing me as such as we have an agreement between us as to how we will work and that's it but what is wrong with the contract um so employment contracts in general essentially are um this controlling structure um which say uh you know you are going to get this amount of money for doing this work regardless of what um you know, you're bringing into the company i'm not saying being a contractor is that different i mean i really I'm still also getting paid the same amount regardless of how much value I bring to the company. I would like to see it even the next step. So, you know, work a cooperative style um, where I'm getting more if the company makes more, I'm getting less if the company makes less. Um, you know, I'd like to see that kind of thing happening, but right now I can't only work in that kind of environment. There's just not enough opportunities out there. So, yeah. Hmm. But you, you, you do need a contract. You, so, or do you feel like because the company holds the jobs, they have leverage over the individual. So, yeah, contract is actually one of those difficult things because one of the big um, differences between socialist thought and capitalist thought is on what property is and what um, the idea of legal fictions. So a company is a legal fiction. It doesn't actually exist as an entity. You can't touch a company, you can't see a company. A company exists on paper and is enforced by the laws and the government um, saying that that is a real thing. Um, in the same way, um, ownership of shares in a company, you know, it's, it's purely a legal fiction. Um, and your contract, um, a contract to work with somebody or even an employment contract are, again, this type of legal fiction. 
generally speaking, socialism is a political viewpoint where you reject the existence of those things to begin with. Um, so uh, we make a very big difference between the idea of private property and personal property. Socialists tend to be against private property and for personal property. Are, and are you the same? Yes. So, and, so yeah. explain the difference. Exactly, yeah. So private property is um, property that exists as one of these legal fictions. Personal property tends to be stuff you can touch and hold. So, you know, I have a water bottle here. This is my property. You know, um, I have it. My the house, I can't touch Bitcoin. The, uh, you, can, you can virtually touch your private keys to your Bitcoin. Bitcoin held on an exchange, for example, yeah, that's more or less a fiction. And I'd be very concerned about that. So not your keys, not your coins. Um, I actually think Bitcoin lines up very well with the libertarian socialist viewpoint for exactly that reason. You know, people saying not your keys, not your coins, to me, that's a socialist statement. <laughs> okay, so no private property, but okay with personal property. Yes. But it, but would you not consider a company personal property as well? There are, like I consider my podcast property. Um, so your yeah it, it is private but that's private property and actually i in a libertarian sorry to say yeah. <laughs> but in a libertarian social society no your podcast is not a thing that you own your this table is a thing you own these microphones um the agreements that you have with the people to work with you like danny these cameras all of that stuff is your property and you know out of that you are making a podcast which makes you money and you know that's great i'm very much in favor of that but to call what Bitcoin did, a property, um, I would disagree because I don't think it exists as a thing. It's a virtual concept. Okay, let's try and unwrap why it may be useful for it to be a thing, mm -hmm. and you can break it down. So it's useful to be a thing because it's, say, a brand, and it has a structure and an output, and at some point, somebody may want to buy that company from me. Yeah. So you know, I might want to sell you this table, but I might want to sell you the podcast, and with the yeah. podcast, you get the brand, the structure, the team, the history of shows. And so that's an entity I want to sell. Yeah, and that's what I consider problematic. Yeah, okay. If you, do, if you are able to do that, then you are now building a society where those who have capital have power. You're building a society with less freedom because being able to sell this virtual thing essentially gives you capital power over those who do not have these things. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger has recently announced the launch of their new Nano S+. And the larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. The Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And listen, I have been a customer of Ledger since early 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Now, if you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against others and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is definitely the best Bitcoin casino out there. And if you want to find out more, please head over to bitcasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O. 
gamblinghelp.io. And remember, please gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without ever selling their Bitcoin. And with recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserve attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. But not only are Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also, we have the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th, 2022 in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Corey, Yan, and Brady for years, and they are pulling out all the stops to make the Pacific Bitcoin a celebration of the Bitcoin community. I'm going to be emceeing the conference along with Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers, including Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, and Preston Pish. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to have the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences. There's going to be a surfing simulator, and it's going to be loaded with other events and parties before and after the event. They are bringing the brightest minds in Bitcoin in to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption and mining to lightning. You do not want to miss out on the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin Conference. It's going to be a badass event. I'm going to be there. I cannot wait to go. I cannot wait to see you all there. Now, Swan is offering a massive 20% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETA. That's P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N dot com and use the code Peter. So how would you ever transfer a business? Um, essentially, so if somebody wanted to buy, you know, all of the stuff for what Bitcoin did, they would buy, you know, the cameras, they would buy, um, you know, maybe even the digital um, copies of past shows, for example, but they would just go ahead and they would make a new show. So, um, so in, intellectual property, I also don't consider to be. Well, I was going to come to intellectual that. Intellectual property is basically another type of private property, and I, I don't consider it to be something valid in a good society. So well, I'll come back. That, we'll come back to that because that was yeah. on my, my next question. Just quickly, in that scenario, would the subscribers be personal property? Because that's a large part of the value in a podcast, for example. You don't own other human beings. So no, but no. you, <laughs> but you, do you own that subscription? Um. You might own an agreement with those people, but they are free to make agreements with other people as well. So they might make an agreement with a new podcast. So you never sell the company. What happens is if I just don't want to do it anymore, I, I just leave it. And the you know, say if it's Danny and Jeremy, they can find a new host or Danny can take over as a host. But basically I'm free to join it and I'm free to leave it, but I'm never free to sell it. Um, yeah, because there's no it to sell from the libertarian socialist perspective. So it's not that you know we're saying you can't sell your company. We're just saying the company doesn't exist. <laughs> trying to work it through in my head, Danny. Mm. You see where it's, I'm lost. It, it is a very different way of looking at things. And you know, when you're used to capitalist structures, it doesn't it, it doesn't come easy to think of these kinds of things because you're used to the idea of virtual property, you're used to the idea of you know these imaginary things like companies, um, you know, being something. But I mean, I know it has its flaws, but it does create a meritocracy. 
where you can create things and sell things and benefit from that and live the life you choose to live. And I know there's other people who don't have the opportunity. So I had, so we're all lucky in this room in different ways. Yeah. Okay. We're lucky that we were born in Western liberal democracies, not really under authoritarian rule, stable economies, good parents, got a chance to go to a good school. Some people yeah. are born into super shit situations. They could be born in the UK. I mean, we just made a film about we're covering some you know, pretty underprivileged areas. There's people who don't have good parents or don't have a good chance to get into an education. Some people break free of that and, and do very well, but there is a consistent pattern with those who come from good or bad backgrounds and what they achieve. Then you've got people who are not even born in this country and maybe born in shitty countries with no opportunity. Yeah. So what you're trying to do here is create more uh, equitable opportunity but n not equitable outcome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it increases equitable opportunity by increasing liberty. I mean, essentially, that's what, if you, if you really think about it, liberty is the freedom to do what you want to do but, um, but within your means. But then isn't there a contradiction? Because if I want the freedom to do what I want to do, I might want to create a company. To what, yeah, but then other people would have to recognize that. So it's it's the whole the whole idea there is whether or not it's recognized. So you know if everyone legally else, recognized and legally is just societally. So sure, if it's societally recognized that companies exist, then you can sell your company. But I would aim for a society where it's not recognized that companies exist. I don't want to get caught up on that analogy, but the thing I'm really struggling with is that over the last you know four or five years or however long you've been doing the podcast. All that sort of time and effort has been to build the audience and make it a, a full business now with multiple employees that makes money. Yeah. And if you go to sell it, it's worth more than just the cameras and the table and the microphones. So how do you value that in this? This. Well, I think yeah, but I think what Ben's getting at is if I do do that, I suddenly have more capital. And once you, you know, it's like that old term: the first million is the hardest. Once you've got money, it's easy to make money and accumulate more capital, more capital. But but to someone buying it, it it just in, it is worth more than the physical goods. It's a different point. There is that, what you're saying, but what, what Ben's getting at, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. you're getting at the negative externalities of that, allowing that to happen, in yeah. that you get this widening wealth gap, rich and poor, you give power to you know, those who have the capital. You know, we're see, we're, you know, we are seeing that. I mean, in some ways, um, huh, new TV, new rules. Um, in some ways, we're seeing that now in that, uh, society like we've never lived in such an abundant society like the united kingdom is a very wealthy country relatively yet we have what is it 40 percent of the country living in fuel poverty yeah you know, i don't know how many kids are living in poverty but like it's quite high I mean, we what you're trying to say is there's enough money or enough capital in the world for there not to be such uh unequitable distribution Exactly. And I think you can actually use Bitcoin as another good example of that. Bitcoin, you know, there's been a relatively um, relatively strong thing that people have been saying recently about Bitcoin represents energy. Um, and people describe that in different ways. But um, value in a lot of ways can be simply thought of as the amount of energy that a, um, that a group produces or uses. Um, the more energy you produce or use, the more value you can generate from that. Um, and you know, Bitcoin is like this perfect monetary equivalent from the energy because of the way proof of work works. Um, as a society is generating a certain amount of energy, you can split that in different ways. And capitalism essentially concentrates that to those who already have. So the more you have, the more you will gain. 
the less you have, the less you will gain. So capitalism almost definitionally ends up splitting people into the haves and the have-nots. You know, you're pushing more and more to those who have, they're getting richer and richer, and the poor are getting poorer. Is there a risk that you destroy incentive structures which have created that advanced society? So we may have more advanced med- medicine, and then somebody could say, yeah, but now we have also the incentives for companies to sell bullshit that you don't need. Yes, yeah, so there's both <laughs> exactly. sides of that. But, but uh, do, is there a risk that we do uh, destroy incentives? So um, you know, straightforward, yes. Um, I think you know, even with all of the negative things I say about capitalism, you know, I can see ca- things have done pretty well under capitalism for quite a long time. Um, I'm not sure how long or how many of those things are directly attributable to capitalism, though. You know, maybe if we had a you know libertarian socialist society, we would, still would have developed a lot of great things. Um, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more. Who knows? Um, it's possible that the the capitalist structures, like you say, you know, it does incentivize things because you've got a lot more competition happening um, directly um, it, at a kind of a grander scale. Um, but also, like you said, you know, it incentivizes bullshit as well. It incentivizes people to, you know, um, in Germany, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here. Do but, it, man. Um, you know, uh, in Germany, um, if you go to your local pharmacy and, you know, say, I need something for a headache, there's a very good chance they're going to give you homeopathic sugar pills, which do literally nothing for your headache. What? Why? Why do they just give you Nurofen? Because the sugar pill manufacturer um, is allowed to sell it as if it's medicine, um, and they've like there's no there's nothing there's nothing stopping them doing that, and the pharmacy will make more money off it because they can put a bigger markup on it. So you know, you actually if you want something that actually works, you walk in and you ask for the thing that you want. Okay, but in yeah. a libertarian uh, socialist society with maximum liberty, they could still sell products like that. Yes, but they don't have as many incentives to anymore. Basically, the the incentive structure that ala- the incentive structure that causes that sort of thing to happen is largely disappearing because you no longer have this uh, you know strong um, motivation to make more money off the money that you have. You instead have uh, motivation to make money off productive, useful work. Why? Um, making money off money is essentially what capitalism allows. Um, just trying to think how to work. Yeah, but, if, best, if, but uh, in the end, you still want to make money yeah. because if you have the more money you have, the things you can do. So, yeah. like, yeah, you might want a bigger house. You might want to have two holidays a year. Mm-hmm. You might want to drive a nice car. You yep. might want to have a helicopter. You might want to have a yacht. Like, there's there's always new targets. Yeah. Those targets will still exist. You still Absolutely. have markets. So, I still will have an incentive to be successful, yep. and I might realize, hey, I can make more money selling these sugar pills and manufacturing this. Yeah, and I, I think some people absolutely would try and some people might even be reasonably successful at it. But I think um, the you are more likely to be successful at selling something which people actually want to buy again. Um, so you know, if somebody has a headache, they are more likely to buy Nurofen mm-hmm. than they are to buy sugar pills once they have tried both. Um, but isn't that going to happen in a capitalist society? <laughs> To an extent, perhaps, yes, um, but I think less so because in the capitalist society you've got these um, structures that allow people to be producing more unproductive bullshit, basically. I mean, I think but, that, yeah. that is certainly true. I'm just not sure it works on, uh, with your sugar yeah. pill analogy. Perhaps but, my analogy wasn't the best yeah. one, but yeah. No. After saying, let's not get caught up in the analogy, I'm mm-hmm. totally caught up in the analogy. Me too. Okay. Um, 
what I struggle to get my head around is even if you if in this world you can't sell what Bitcoin did as a business, are you not just choosing to like ignore value? Because those subscribers, unless I'm thinking of this completely wrong, they are valuable. And so you can ignore it, but it's still there. So they are valuable, but you would basically be choosing to either walk away from them or not walk away from them. In the same way that if I um, sell fruit on the corner, I have regular customers. The fact that they trust me to sell them nice fruit, Mm -hmm. it it has value. Um, But if I choose to stop selling fruit, then that's my choice and that basically just disappears. But that seems like an inefficiency. So if you wanted to buy the podcast, that's that's a, you know... I don't know, a five-year head start as opposed to starting fresh with that, just with our cameras if you just buy the physical things. Mm-hmm. So how, how can you, like, how do you square that when something is valuable, you're just choosing to not take it? Um, does it take a, yeah, a mind shift I'm, for everyone? Uh, it, it does take a mind shift for everyone, yeah. It, it takes um, enough people agreeing that that is the way that society works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that's why it's best done as a slow approach by just finding and identifying the inefficiencies first. Um, and really aiming for, you know, um, or the the unnecessary hierarchies first. So find those, eliminate them, and see how society builds. Again, this is one of those questions which is more towards the you know perfect utopian society in the future, which I deliberately don't try to imagine. Mm-hmm. So you know exactly what that would look like. I don't know, and I don't have a good answer to the question. You know, what about the value of the subscribers? I think it's possibly an inefficiency, which is worth it. Right. I think perhaps maybe one of the issues with some of the ideas is I think they ignore human nature. And I think we have like an innate human nature to organize, lead. We have people who want to lead, who desire to lead. Mm-hmm. We also have people who actually, some people don't want to lead. They want to work. Look, I've run companies. Yep. And within the companies, you, you have a structure. You have a CEO, you have a board, you have management teams, and you have some people who want to sit on a board table and be at board meetings. The other people, they just, I just want to turn up and just tell me what the fuck to do and just pay me. Um, I'm sure everyone wants to have part of the business, but everyone wants more of the business. Yeah. Um, and you, when you say you have to have enough people who want this, Maybe there just never will be enough people who want this. Possibly not, but actually I would also, I would push back a little bit on it being innate human nature, and I would say it's the nature of people who have grown up in that system. If you go back a thousand years and you look at the feudal societies of Europe, you know, I don't think you had a lot of people who, um, you know, amongst the the plebs who really wanted to be, um, you know, uh, running a corporate structure. And if you talk to them oh, about... Do the, you don't think the serfs wanted to be the lords? If you, you talk, don't th- uh, yes, but that's a different thing. That's one. That's not wanting to be... Um, that That's not wanting to be running a corporation. That's wanting to be uh, in a better status in life. And I think everyone wants to be in a better status in life, regardless, like you were saying before, you know, there's always the next thing, the nice car, the helicopter, whatever. Um and that's why I'm an advocate of free markets still. I don't say get rid of markets. I don't say get rid of money. I think communism is this utopian ideal because of that. You, know, you can't do that. Um, that goes against human nature. But um, identifying the um, unnecessary hierarchies and getting rid of those, uh, I think, works better. And yet, what I'm saying about the feudal societies, you know, they didn't have an idea of corporations, the idea of a company. It was just people coming together and doing things. Um, you know, a... 
a butcher shop back then or a goldsmith or whatever, they were people applying themselves to do a trade. And if they stopped doing that trade, then things like you know, the trust relationship they had with their customers is gone in the same way we were talking about subscribers before. Um, so you know, we haven't always lived in a capitalist society. And I think capitalism is not um, inevitable and not necessarily human nature. It's just something that we have gotten used to. Perhaps that's just part of evolution. Yeah, we evolved to, yeah, we sorry, we evolved away from feudalism. Now uh, we we have this new societal structure. We do have uh, new laws and reg You know, it's yep. one of the things that's come out of that is we have regulations. So back then, if you were a, I don't know, a castle builder, you would just build the castle. Sure. But now you a house builder, you build the house. But there's certain regulations, certain things you have to do to so you ensure you don't build structures that. Uh, that crumble, you know, certain buildings that have to be able to survive certain weather conditions. Um, you know, if, have we not involved to do things for the betterment of society? And yes, there are weaknesses in there. Yes, there's inefficiencies yep. in there. Yes, there's things that we can complain about. But but you can criticize every single structure. But are, are we not coming to a natural... Uh, are we not evolving naturally to where we should be? I... Don't know would be a very good answer to that. Um, it's possible that human humanity will evolves towards capitalism and then stays there. But I think it would be naive to say that we but, know but capitalism, that for sure. Sorry, I'm, yep. I'm going to interrupt. People hate it when I interrupt. I apologize. Okay. So I just want to get this point because it's like capitalism is essentially the accumulation of stuff. Capitalism is the con is the ability to control society by the accumulation of stuff. I think I don't see it as that. I think capitalism is the accumulation of stuff. I think a, a fair observation is that it leads to the ability to control parts of society. But in under feudal, under feudalism, there was control. Oh, absolutely, it was a much more direct and dictatorial control, much yeah. more authoritarian. Absolutely. So we've actually got less authoritarian in a capitalist society, but I, I see it as the accumulation of stuff. But isn't that just like an innate, uh, evolved part of biology that you know, we need? You know, go back. You look at any animals or go back. They need food. Always that the one thing you need every day. Uh, mm -hmm. The hierarchy of needs. Uh, yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. One of them is food. It is. And so you know we evolved to. Yeah, you know, we used to be scavengers and. You know, hunter gatherers, and then we learned about, about farming, and so we created farms, and then we would, you know, be able to hold product and 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 you know the yield from the farm and store it, and then have to protect that. But it's a, the accumulation. Uh, we've just we're just accumulating crazy now because we want different stuff. Sure, sure. I I don't disagree with any of that, um, except that. Uh, when we're talking about the accumulation of stuff, you know, I, I also, like I said, I have no problem with that. Um, you know, I think that's a natural thing in a market and you will naturally, you know, humans want stuff. We want a better life. We want to be happier. Um, so, and stuff generally makes us happy. Um, or we hope like hats. We hope stuff makes us happy, maybe. Hats make me happy. Hats are good, yeah. yeah. I spent far too much on this one, but uh, yeah. Oh, now I want to know. You can't say that. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about it later. We'll yeah. talk about that later. <laughs> All right. Did you price in in sats? No, I've had this one for much longer. Yeah. So I bought a hat off Jimmy Song once in sats. And it's on the table out here. Is it, is it on the table? Uh -huh. I can't wear it because it depresses me because <laughs> I actually know how much I paid in a in an auction. I know, now know what it cost me that is probably the most expensive cowboy hat in the world. Which is why, actually, to get back to what I was saying, right at the start, um, you know, um, 
the opportunity cost of spending Bitcoin is the same as the opportunity cost of spending fiat that you could have exchanged for Bitcoin but didn't. Don't think of it as an expensive hat. Think of all of the pounds that you had sitting around that you didn't exchange for Bitcoin at that point in time. Huh. Makes it even worse. That's no, that's a real click because I think. Ah, that's yeah. a light bulb moment, Danny. Yeah. We're gonna need some more Bitcoin, man. <laughs> no, that's right. You're right. You're you're fucking right. Yeah. <laughs> so Sahil explained it. You explained it earlier, but that's the first time I've like it's properly clicked. When I compare it to all the stuff I've bought in Bitcoin, and I'm like, shit, why did I pay in Bitcoin? But if I did just put all my fiat in, yeah. <sighs> and the, it's the exact same thing. If you bought that hat with fiat. That was fiat you could have exchanged for Bitcoin but didn't because you preferred the hat. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with buying a hat if you want a hat. But you know, um, you think about the value of that hat and what it potentially could be in the future. Maybe you want it, maybe you don't. That's your choice. Ah, right. Yeah. You can't use that to take me away from where we were, though. Yeah, okay. Right. So <laughs> where are we? Rules, not rulers. Yes. How do you establish rules without rulers? Yeah. And how do you enforce rules without rulers? So, yeah, that's, you know, I love that quote, rules without rulers. That is, you know, the kind of classic anarchist thing along with no gods, no masters. Um, but how do you establish rules? Essentially by agreement. And agreements can get very complex. They can be between individuals. They can be between groups of people. They can be between large groups of people who agreed that somebody else should temporarily represent them in order to make an agreement at an even larger scale. And this is where you get into an interesting question, and I know there's a lot of people who would strongly disagree with me here. I think the US founding fathers were essentially libertarian socialists. I think they were anarchists, and what they were attempting to do with federalism was really to establish a more um, fair kind of society where smaller groups of people are making agreements between each other. The states just got too large and too unwieldy over time. I don't disagree. I don't completely disagree with you. I, I mean, I would have to go and spend a bit of time offline researching it, but I certainly feel there's a definite strong libertarian bent to the founding fathers. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of desire for liberty and freedom. And, and uh, yeah, we've talked about the constitution. I've, I've got that mini constitution book, actually, but we've talked about it a lot recently. I find it fascinating. I, th I think you might be right. I, I actually think one of the problems with the US right now is the federal government's got too big. Yeah, the federal government is far too big and too much power. But I would even say the state governments are too big and have too much power because the states are too large and unwieldy. They are no longer groups of people who can get together and you know organize amongst themselves, which is what they were at the time that all of those you know, documents and things were written. At the time the U.S. Constitution were written was written, you know, there were just a few towns in each state, and the towns everyone knew each other, and they could get together and make agreements with each other, and then they could send representatives to say, "Hey, hey, here's what we agreed in our town," and you know that becomes the Congress. Right. A lot of a lot of people. Um, oh, when I when I meet libertarians or speak to people about this, you get a lot of people who say that I'm libertarian or I'm right-wing libertarian. Very, very rare that you hear left-wing libertarian. Um, is it? Do you think it's fair for someone to call themselves left or right-wing libertarian? Because the, the wing implies a political ideology, whereas libertarian is, libertarian, libertarianism itself is kind of like the idea of little to no state. Yeah. So I, I do think it's fair, but only in a more traditional standpoint where you essentially look at the left-right as being an economic situational divide rather than being a um, you know, political divide. So um, you know, if you 
recognize um, private property as being a valid thing and no difference between personal and private property, you're probably more right-wing. If you recognize that divide, you're probably more left-wing. Um, if you if you recognize that people shouldn't be able to own certain things because they are just naturally existing. For example, the air that I am breathing right now, we all agree, hopefully, that nobody owns that and nobody should be able to own it. Um, what about the water flowing in a river? Well, some people will say you can own that. Other people will say you can't. Um, then what about you know, a factory that produces stuff? Right now, most people will say you can own that and other uh, very, very few people will say you can't. But where is the divide? Where do you draw the line and say, this is something which is ownable and this is something which is not ownable? And that's basically where you are on the left-right spectrum. Um, the furthest to the right says you can own literally anything. You can own this air that I'm breathing and say, you know, this is my air, I'm selling it to you. That's the ultimate far right. And I think that's totally crazy. The ultimate far left is you cannot own anything at all. Property does not exist. Um, you know, take what you can and what you have in your hands is yours and nothing else. And you know, if somebody can fight you for it and take it, then they now own it. I also disagree with that. I think both of those extremes are absolutely ridiculous. You, somewhere along there is um, reasonableness, generally more towards the center, but I fall on the left of that center. So <laughs> Right. So there, are there libertarian centrists? I would imagine so, but I've never met one. <laughs> huh. Because you get centrists. I think of myself yeah. as a centrist. Yeah. But I don't think of myself as a centrist where I'm straight down the middle on every issue. Yeah. I consider myself as a centrist whereby I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't feel, feel like I'm particularly attached to a, uh, the left or the right yep. on any you know, particular issue. I, you know, what is the issue? This is what I think. Have you seen the two-axis political compass? I think so. Yeah, it's basically um, up-down, so the top-bottom is authoritarian to libertarian. Yep. The left-right is basically traditional left-right. Um, and then you, know, you generally fall within one of those quadrants. You got it, Danny. Yeah. Um, like most US political parties, for example, are in the top right. Um, they move around within the top right, but you know, even the US Democrats, they're definitely not left. They are authoritarian right-wing. They're less right-wing than the conservatives. I think they're probably slightly more authoritarian. I don't really recall. Um, but yeah, you know, they are both authoritarian and they are both um, right-wing. Um, so then you've got people like, you know, um, um, you know the, the fascists, like, uh, you know, and fascism is extremely right-wing and extremely authoritarian. So that's, you know, the top right of the top right box. But then you've got people like, um, you know, the authoritarian communists, and they tend to be the top left box. So, you know, um, they're left-wing, but they're extremely authoritarian. And but you get left-wing fascists as well, right? Uh, fascism, by definition, is right-wing. So actually, no, you don't get... You get left-wing dictators. You get left-wing authoritarians. Hold on, wasn't, weren't the Nazis? The Nazis fascists? are right-wing, absolutely. They called themselves national socialists. Yeah. But the first people they rounded up and got rid of were socialists. So, huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, that, so they tricked people. It was a marketing tactic, you know, in, in the same way that, uh, you know, the People's Republic of North Korea is neither for the people nor a republic. Democratic it's, Republic. Yeah, yeah, Democratic Republic of North Korea. Yeah. yeah, it's not democratic, it's not for the people, and it's not a republic, so... Okay, but yeah, um, yeah, the political compass, the nice thing, there's a website where you can actually basically take a test. It asks a bunch of questions and you, know, you answer them and you it gives you a point. Yeah. By no means is that definitive, 
Yeah, that's the one. So where so do you place yourself? I place myself near the lower left of the le- lower left box. So um, definitely not all the way to the left, but somewhere kind of in that bottom left corner. All right, Danny, where do you think you are? Uh, I definitely think I'd probably be more to the right. I think I'm right in the middle of the crosshairs. Be interesting really, to see where you are on the uh, up-down scale, actually. I really don't want to say that I'm any anything authoritarian, though. I just believe. No. But remember, authoritarian doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily only for, um, you know, what we traditionally think of as government. Yeah. You know, you know, are you in favor of the idea that the boss of a company can basically tell his employees, you know, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, regardless of what your employment contract said. Your, your employment contract said... Um, you know, you're a server at McDonald's, but now I'm asking you to sweep the floor, so you have to sweep the floor. No, I believe, I mean, I have employees, I, you know, they have yeah. the things they're going to do, and sometimes I ask them to do other things. Like yesterday, Danny helped me put the couch together, but <laughs> yeah. like if he went, no, fuck off, I wouldn't say, no, you have to. Right, yep. So that makes you more towards the libertarian and less towards the authoritarian. Right, okay, yeah. okay. It's so complicated. Do you know what I think? My simple version of this is that, we have too many competing ideologies. We do, yes. And uh, one of the things you notice when you make a show like this is um, how people get angry against other ideologies. So yep. what will happen is when your show goes out on YouTube, there, but I think I think you'll have a few people who won't agree with you. Oh yeah, what, there's going to be a lot of people saying, "I don't understand what the word liberty means." Yeah. I don't understand libertarianism. I, you know, there may even be a couple of people who say, "You're not even a real socialist because X, Y, Z." Yeah, yeah. And I'll have people go, "Why the fuck are you inviting him on?" Yada yada. And yeah. the interesting thing is, the more people you speak to with a wider variety of ideas, I think actually it can make you become a little bit more balanced yourself. I find that for me, yeah. maybe not for anyone else. But how do you create a society or a structure that keeps as many people happy as possible? And now, obviously, the U.S. as a republic has attempted that. You can vote with your feet. Yep. Um, yeah. What is it that uh, Balaji talks about? Like the 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 uh, vote with your feet is more powerful than the ballot because you can just move. Yeah, it's great to an extent. To an ex- <laughs> to an to an extent, but you're still within the U.S. federal system. But like, how do you do that? And and I can only ever come back to democracy. And I know a lot of people don't like democracy, but at least within the democratic structure, you have, you know, certainly in a Western liberal society, you have the ability to you know, vote and get rid of, and yep. it is inherently flawed. It is. And there are so many issues with it. But if we eradicated it and replaced it with, say, what you mm-hmm. believe in, there will be plenty of people able to criticize issues so, with that as well. You'll probably be happy to hear I am a fan of democracy on a small scale. Yes. Yeah. And that's the problem. Democracy. Uh, yeah. Democracy yeah. at large scale falls prey to populism and you get basically people promising a bunch of cool stuff and then everyone just like, yeah, okay, let's go do that. And then it doesn't work. You know, it's, yeah. That's the problem with democracy at large scale. So I'm a fan of democracy at small scale. I think it's the best way for self-organizing groups in a libertarian socialist society to come up with, okay, what is it that we are doing as a group? You know, they will say, okay, let's vote on this. And yeah, some of us are going to be unhappy, but at least it's only on this small local thing. And if I don't like it, vote with my feet and go to another group who does like it. You know, so essentially get rid of the big scale politics, go down to smaller scale and you know, a lot more localism in that way. Um, and I think you know, democracy works extremely well. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using for buying and sending Bitcoin, but I'm still only buying, right? We're hodlers. The market's looking good. We're not sellers. And I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. 
and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Cake Wallet. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both my security and privacy because it doesn't share my important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can I hodl Bitcoin, but I can easily pay privately with Monero. Cake Wallet is accelerating Bitcoin adoption, since they now support buying gift cards instantly with Bitcoin, which can be used at over 150,000 merchants in the US. You can easily purchase the exact amount you need at the register and have the gift card appear instantly within Cake Wallet without needing to wait for any confirmations. And you also get to save an average 2% on purchases. And Cake Pay only requires an email, nothing else. To check out Cake Wallet, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Google or Apple app stores. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and now they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. If you are looking for a banking provider that understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also today we have Compass Mining and they are not just a sponsor. I'm a customer of Compass 2 and I am back mining Bitcoin. And I've been mining for nearly a year now, and I've mined over 0.75 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass Mining. And to help you, Compass have launched the Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors such as price, miner age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you're interested in mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Yeah, I mean, I can get behind that. We've talked a lot in the UK for, I mean, for like decades now about devolution. So they've talked about, yeah, we have now in the yeah, in the United Kingdom, uh, Scotland and Wales have the ability to set some of their own rules and certain things. I think education yep. is still free in Scotland, for as an example. Um, and then they've talked about maybe, you know, it's never happened, but being able to do it regionally and allow you know, regionally for you to be able to, local governments to be able to set their own rules, which I also think is is, is a great idea. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I would love to see that. Uh, it probably will, <laughs> will, sadly, will sadly never happen. But um, in every one of those scenarios, we still have the state. Yeah, to an extent, and and you see a scenario without a state. But is there any part of the state that you think the st- things that the state does well? Uh, absolutely, I, I I love things like um, a good public healthcare system. You know, I really think you know the UK's public healthcare, for example, it, there's no comparison in places that don't have something like it. You know, um, it's crumbling though at the moment. Yeah, 
Okay, but I think that could be for other reasons. I don't know the UK well enough to say, but you know, maybe it's for a, a bunch of reasons. Well, I think one of the, the reasons is, I mean, it's inefficient because it's a government-run system. Yeah. So, uh, and it, unfortunately, the NHS is sacred in the UK. It's no. sacred, and it's very hard to criticize it because it's we have the NHS. We're proud of the yep. NHS. But it's very inefficient. My mother worked for it. And the horror stories she used to tell me of the amount of bureaucracy and bullshit they dealt that. I volunteered in the hospital for a while. I saw it myself. Yeah. Okay. I, I live in Germany. I understand bureaucracy. It's okay. <laughs> then you get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Germany's famous for being efficient. Germany is not efficient. Germany is bureaucratic. And once upon a time, that probably meant efficiency. But realistically, now it just means a thousand pieces of paper that you carry between a thousand different locations in yeah. order to get anything done. Yeah. So, but there are... I am very proud of the NHS in that uh, I've heard the horror stories in the US. Friends of mine who've had things that have happened, they don't have insurance, or they've got the wrong insurance, or the wrong ambulance turns up, or they, you know, they've only got cover for this part, not that part, or people's lives have been destroyed because they, they broke a leg and they couldn't afford, you know, this. It, it, and I know Tom Wood and some of the other libertarians out there absolutely hate and criticize. Yeah, you know, you know, free healthcare because yep. it's not free and whatever. But but I do like it, yep. and I don't think people want rid of it in this country. Uh, I can identify what I think some of the problems with. Danny, if we had a vote in the UK whether to keep or get rid of the NHS, what do you think the the stay leave thing would be? Ninety plus percent, probably. Yeah, maybe even more. Yeah. Ninety five, maybe ninety eight percent. It would probably be lower than it um, would have been. Actually, maybe not after COVID. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty high. It's It'd be unanimous, I think. Some of the problems with the NHS right now is is the backlog from COVID. Yeah. We do have massive backlogs in um, you know, operations and waiting times. Also, I think another problem with the NHS, it can never have enough funding. Yeah, every political campaign is like, we're going to put another $20 billion into the NHS. And I don't, I don't know where it goes. And I don't know if it's because medicine's become so advanced since... I mean, when did the NHS start? Can you find out when mm -hmm. it was launched? Do you know this? I don't, but yeah. um, I, you know, I, I can kind of answer where the money's going, and that's more bureaucracy, and that's kind of the problem with a government. So I'm assuming here, obviously, I don't know, but um, yeah, you know, that's the problem with government-run things compared to things that are organized by groups. And that this is where I'm making the distinction again between a government being something which sets and defines rules versus. Um, an organizing group, which is simply people who say, okay, this is what we're doing together and what we've agreed upon. Um, I do think you can have something like the NHS without having a government that defines laws. However, you're going to reduce a lot of the bureaucracy because you're going to reduce things like, okay, this person's job is set for life and this person is this yeah. paper pusher who does this and you know they can't be fired or whatever. You know, I think those are where a lot of the inefficiencies come into those kinds of systems. I think there's two things. I think you're right. I'm going to add another one in. When 1948. 1948. So that's... God, it's during the war. No, it's after the war, 1945. So three years after the end of the World yep. War, the NHS is created. But what kind of medical coverage did people have? What kind of treatments did we have? I, I have no idea in 1948 if you had cancer, what kind of treatment they had. But I'm pretty sure there weren't advanced drugs and advanced screening machines and MRI machines. Medi medicine is so advanced now, but it's become expensive. Yeah. I mean, we know with certain drugs, because you know, we hear about it, there's a um, National In Institute for Clinical Excellence, NICE, they decide which drugs that people will have. And you hear cases in the UK where somebody wants a certain treatment for maybe it's a breast cancer. 
and the treatment's so expensive that National Institute NICE won't approve it. And then eventually maybe it'll go to court, maybe they do, but they are rejecting drugs. So I agree with you on the bureaucracy, that is one side, but there's also clearly a massive increase in cost because the, the range of treatments and the cost of treatment and medical equipment, there's so yeah. much more. Uh, there definitely is, and I think that's a very large part of it, but it's definitely not all, and I think um, bureaucracy comes in at every level. So yeah. you know, why are drugs so expensive? Because it costs so much to develop them. Why does it cost so much to develop them? Now actually IP. you start getting into a lot of the things like intellectual property. Yes, so yes, I did want to talk about because um, it was actually Roger Veer who first talked to me about this. Mm -hmm. um, he explained to me that he is like anti intellectual property. Yeah. And I actually think this is a very interesting area. Yeah. Um, to me, yeah, intellectual property is simply another form of private property. I, I, I think it's uh, um, something we created as people in order to try to make things work better in the society that we were building, this capitalist kind of society, and it horribly backfired. I think there's almost nothing good to the idea of intellectual property. Um, uh, you know, it does encourage people to try and do some things in a few cases, but I think the negatives far outweigh the positives. In, ex for example, drug development, um, you know, you have to buy this piece of IP in order to do this particular um, synthesis of a particular drug, and then you buy this other piece of IP in order to have a molecule that looks like a certain shape based on, um, you know, somebody else's patent. Um, in, just as a precursor to make the drug that you want, which is now a novel new drug, but actually doesn't look that different to another one. And the only reason you made it was because um, the other one that would have worked just as well is patented by another company. That entire process is ridiculously long and complex and expensive, and it brings no value. Well, it, bring, it, it brings value <laughs> it brings to the patent money. holder. Yeah, well, it brings money to the patent holder. It brings no value to society. And it brings no... The, the total value of society has not increased after all of that. It's just transferred to the hands of those capitalists who hold the IP. So what we're really saying is that patents create concentrations of wealth. Yes. Therefore, concentrations of power. Yes. Yeah. And without patents, you would have the ability to... Somebody else could copy a drug and make it cheaper. So we'd yep. have a much more efficient and competitive market yep. for drugs, which we do want. We always want competition. We always yep. want more free markets. Absolutely. But what would happen in terms of uh, drug research? Because a lot of money, the argument is that these companies have to invest so much money into drug research that they need to patent it to protect their work. But I guess without that, you might get more collaboration between drug companies to do the research. You would. I mean, we as a society, we still want to solve problems, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So people will try to solve problems even if the total amount of money coming in is less. You know, it's still going to be profitable, um, especially when you're now not paying as much for all of those intermediate steps and so on. So, you know, it costs so much, therefore we have to patent. But why does it cost so much? Because of things like patents. So, you know, you can reduce the money that it costs and then you're more incentivized to do it. Um, it's just kind of basic to me there. Certain patents have limitations on the expiration dates, don't yeah. they? Do we have uh, do we have any knowledge of what the impact is once these expiration dates pass? Is it just a drive down of the prices? Um, so often, yes, but also there are like tricks that different people play. And I'm not an expert on this, but you know, I know in drug development, for example, they'll make something which is almost the same but not quite, and then patent that and claim that that covers the old one because of similarity. <laughs> So, Motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
The term socialism is often used as a pejorative. It is. And uh, even in making the show, certain opinions like I've held or certain discussion I've had, they're like, oh, you're just a lefty or you're just a socialist or you're basically a commie. Yeah. It basically just goes, even in the idea, I like the NHS, you're basically a commie. <laughs> you know, we always think to that. But whenever you actually ask somebody who is socialist or understands socialism, they always talk about it's about the owning of the means of production. Yeah. So what would you say to people who are very anti-socialist? Like, firstly, do you think they have the definition wrong? Do they misunderstand it? Or do they have to just have a fair opinion that's different from yours? Um, usually they misunderstand it. Um, so usually it's something like um, they think socialism means having a government who is going to redistribute wealth in order to try and make everybody have equal outcomes. I have never seen any socialist, any self-identified socialist advocating for that. The only people I've seen advocating for that are, you know, high school students who haven't learned enough about the world to realize how bad of an idea it is. Um, and perhaps the US Democrat Party sometimes, but I also, like I said, you know, they're not socialist, not at all. Um, so, yeah, I think it's mostly just a misunderstanding of what the term means. Um, then you've got the problems of things like, you know, the USSR the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Oh, clearly that must be a socialist society. Okay, did the workers own the means of production in the USSR? No, they did not. Simple, I, I, you know, I, I know people are going to say, oh, you know, pull up the memes, that wasn't real socialism. Yeah, but it simply wasn't. The workers did not own the means, means of production. That is not socialism. So it's basically <laughs> people are confusing means of production with uh, taxation and redistribution. Yeah. And that's... Are useless. Well, do you, but but can we can words over time be redefined? Because I feel like that's what people think socialism yeah. is. Socialism is uh, collectivism. Yeah. So linguistics is one of my hobbies, and yes, words change meaning over time. They do, and perhaps what, you know, eventually we're going to have to give up on the word socialism. But the problem is, there are so many books about socialism written over hundreds of years now, and or well, hundred and a bit years um, about socialism, and they're all talking about the thing that I'm talking about. They're not talking about redistribution of wealth. So, you know, if you pick up a book about socialism, it's talking about the things that I'm talking about now. It's not talking about, um, you know, taking money and distributing it out to people. So the new definition simply doesn't match what you're going to pick up and read in a book. So I prefer to stick with the term as long as possible because it just, it, it should avoid confusion rather than cause it. What do you think of fair criticisms of socialism? So that's difficult because socialism is such a broad thing. I think there are fear. Where, where might you socialists argue? Yeah. So definitely on how much state is necessary. Um, you know, there are people who I would define as state socialists, and I think it's a ridiculous idea because state socialism essentially is saying we have representatives, they are the government, and the workers own the means of production, but we're giving that to the government to do on our behalf because they are our representatives. To me, that's just a concentration of power in the government and it very quickly devolves into essentially authoritarianism because you've now given the government control of every major company and corporation and so on. It's, it, that's a really bad thing to do. Yeah, just <laughs> yeah. like a Saudi. Yeah. Concentrating is, is, is on it even in China? Like you're part, every company is partly owned by the government. Yeah, and that's, that's state socialism. That's exactly right. what state socialism is and you know, I'm very strongly against that. Um, yeah, so those are the kinds of things socialists argue about. We also, of course, definitely argue about things like you know, um, 
how much personal property is personal property. You know, you own this house, you're living in this house potentially, and you know, that's clearly your house. But what about the fact that you own this house and you own another house somewhere else? At what point is that no longer personal property? There's, it really becomes a gray area and that's what socialists will argue about. They'll say, you know, okay, the house you're living in is clearly yours, that's personal property, but that other house that you own and you're um, not using at all is not, but this third house that you own and you're using it as your summer home, that is yours because it's a personal property. You know, every summer you go there and you, you know, live in it for a short time. But that's, you know, it How really do you is... protect property rights then in that scenario? Yeah, I don't know. And that's that's why it's this point where people argue about things. And, you know, I don't claim to have the answer there either. I, I, if somebody asks me, is your summer home personal property or private property? My answer is going to be probably, I don't know. Let's, you know, get together and figure it out collectively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you bring up some interesting points. But I think people people sometimes just want structure and definition. Yeah. They want to understand where they are, where they are with certain things. I think you advocate for some things that are interesting. I think the John Lewis model is 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 cool. I know people who work for John Lewis, they like it. When John Lewis has a successful year, all the staff get a bonus. Mm-hmm. I think that is great. We don't have that with the podcast. It is mine. Danny sure. can't have shit. <laughs> no, but 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 we but no, we do. We share yeah. the benefits of the podcast out. Mm-hmm. Um I think but I think getting to I, I don't see a libertarian socialist society as something that will ever happen. But what I do think is the th- ideas that you have can influence society and maybe change it for the better. P- maybe yeah. someone will listen and go, you know, maybe after this I'll turn around and go, do you know what, I should share, share the means of production with that. I'm not. But maybe <laughs> I'll think like that. No, fuck you, Danny. In a lot of ways, that's actually kind of the goal. It's like... Yeah. Um, no, but no, maybe I yeah. will. Like It's generally on my mind yeah. now. I mean, I look at it a lot like um, you could say the goal of science is to know absolutely everything. We will never know absolutely everything. The, what science does is makes you get less wrong with every answer. Every time we discover something new, we are less wrong about the way the universe works. That's what science is. But you could say science has the goal of knowing everything, and we're never going to reach it. Libertarian socialism, I'd say, could be the same sort of thing. There is no perfect libertarian socialist society, and there never will be but we can get steps closer to it and continue to get more libertarian socialist. How niche are you as a Bitcoiner? Uh, relatively niche. I definitely know there are, you know, there's a few progressives who strongly agree with me on a lot of things, not everything. Um, I do know a few other um, classical anarchists who I would say I agree with on, you know, 99% of stuff. Um, you know, it's always not everything, but, uh, you know, people like Ben Ark, um, uh, there's this... Uh, I love Ben. Yep. Um, this uh, nice um, German girl, Louisa. Um, I think she's in Berlin, but yeah. Um, so you know, there's a few, there's a few, there's a few classical anarchists who are Bitcoiners, and you know, I would say I agree with them on a lot of stuff. We're seeing more yeah. progressives coming into Bitcoin now. Definitely, we've yeah. um, we're making a bit of an effort over the next uh, couple of months to uh, speak to more of them on the podcast. And the reason we want to do that is that I think uh, as Bitcoin grows and becomes. Uh, become more widespread in society, more adopted, it's naturally going to be uh, adopted by people who may be from the left as well. And one of the things I've been trying to say to people is, you like, if you're from the right, you should love the fact that people from the left are coming into Bitcoin. And you should yeah. want them to come into Bitcoin. And you should disagree with them as much as you want, but celebrate the fact that they're coming in because you know, they're doing two things. They're going to defend Bitcoin to the FUD spreaders from the yep. left 
and they're also going to bring their left friends in. And this is the one area we don't want to fight on. You can fight on you know, bips and tech and shit coins versus Bitcoin, all of that. But I think we all agree that Bitcoin is good for everyone. Yep. So it's like, I think we should be celebrating these people coming in and supporting them and helping them understand Bitcoin and, and civilly dealing with our disagreements. And, and, and I'm, a big, I'm a big advocate of that. Absolutely. Um, you know, if it were the other way around, I would welcome the right into Bitcoin. You know, if Bitcoin were majority left, and you know, I was like the mainstream opinion. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. If I were, um, you know, I would welcome the right. I would still strongly disagree with them on you know the left versus right issues, but I would welcome them into Bitcoin because uh, you know it, it's only positive to have more more people with more different views. How do you find it at the moment, Bitcoin? Because it, it's very tetchy. We're almost having a weekly. Like uh, nail someone to the cross and have it. It was Matt yeah. Corallo yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I don't agree with Matt on you know, yeah uh, old coins or whatever. I think the guy's awesome and I love what he's done for Bitcoin and he's brilliant. And, yeah. It, and yeah. I'm not saying he's unimpeachable, but at the same time, it feels like a it was like a mob yesterday wanting to yep. destroy him. It's like, oh, hold on a second, Matt is a Bitcoiner. He's done a lot for Bitcoin. Yep, he's not trying to destroy Bitcoin. He's not asking for a hard fork. No, he's not advocating for poor security. Like he, I mean, all the work he did for trying to have uh, the mining, uh, so the mining and the pools become more decentralized, very important work. And it felt like the mob fucking went for him. Yeah, I, I really feel the the meme of toxic maximalism is become self-reinforcing people are trying to be more toxic which is a ridiculous negative well, it's a race thing to, to the do. bottom yeah it's a, it's a race to the bottom you know um, and something i've always tried to be is a non-toxic maximalist i am a bitcoin maximalist i you know i believe money forms a natural monopoly within an economy and bitcoin is the best form of money to do that so i do not see any long-term value in altcoins i do see value in experimenting and playing with things I, i'm not interested in it personally but if somebody wants to go off and create some kind of random shitcoin which does something interesting technologically i'll look at the tech and i'll say yeah that's interesting um maybe we can use it in bitcoin maybe we can't um but yeah, that's what really interests me is bitcoin um i'm not interested in any of those uh, shitcoins um so i am a maximalist but non-toxic maximalist. I do not see any value in pushing people down and yelling at them and screaming at them. You know, if I want to bring people into Bitcoin, I will educate. I will teach. I will help them understand why Bitcoin is a good thing and also why I view, um, you know, why I have this opinion that money forms a natural monopoly. You know, it's not an obvious thing. Um, you know, maybe people, some people say, oh yeah, there can be a bunch of different monies. You know, I know um, Andreas Antonopoulos is of that opinion um, and, you know, he's one of the people I respect most in this space and I disagree with him on that, you know, very fundamental thing. Well, you should banish him from your life and <laughs> call him names and... Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree. I think long. I'm a long-term Bitcoin maximalist in that I believe in the long-term money is a natural monopoly. But I think in the short term, people have decisions to make. They've got to like uh, use certain technologies, uh, monetary technologies, to survive. And yep. you know, maybe they're going to not use one that I agree with. But you know, that's fine. That's why them. And I absolutely do agree. There's plenty of people out there creating useless experiments that shouldn't be done. And people are getting ripped off and losing money. And you know, yep. I think we should be aware of that. But I also hope that I'm kind of hoping there's going to be a change in the kind of discussion around this because I'm it's kind of getting a bit tiring now. It's like yesterday yep. when I saw the Matt stuff, I was like, oh God. Yeah. 
Here we go again. Fuck's sake. And then then there's going to be a Twitter spaces on it. And six people are going to talk about Maxi's like this. And, you know, this, and, you know, there's a criticism Maxi's is that they're mean. I don't think the, I think there's a more important criticism. Not that they're mean. It's like how much time and energy is being wasted and how effective is this? Like maximalism is important. You know, we had a, um, a Bitcoin meetup at our football club the other day. 60 people turn up. It was great. And we only talked about Bitcoin. Yeah, people ask about altcoins. We're like, probably should avoid them. We're here. We're focused on Bitcoin. And, and that was great. We weren't you know, yelling at anyone. And I wonder how much time people are wasting discussing maximalism, discussing what somebody else is doing, and having a Twitter space on it, and spending it all day arguing, when actually they're probably not... They're probably just reinforcing their beliefs and a few friends' beliefs. Yeah. And actually, they could be using that time to be out there educating and doing other things. Yep. So they're, they're reinforcing an echo chamber. They're wasting time. It's, it's, it's completely unproductive. Um, it's potentially even negative in that some other people could see it and say, I don't want to be a part of this crap. And well, that does happen. Yeah, and stay away from Bitcoin because of what they're seeing there. So yeah. Tom from my football club, me and Danny, we went down to the pub with him the other day because Tom always talks to me about this. And he just says, I'm totally put off Bitcoin. I'm just part of it. I just yeah. cannot, because like, he sees all the shit that uh, gets flung my way, and he's like, I've just, I just, I don't want anything to do with this. And that's what I, I just want to have that. Even trying to have this conversation, you know, even trying to have that with some of these people, it's not possible because I don't know what the criticism will be because it will be. But I just want to reframe and say, hey, listen, your goal is Bitcoin expansion, Bitcoin adoption. Mine is the same. Um. Your tactics are A, B, and C. Can we just evaluate whether they're productive or not? I'll do it with mine. Yeah. Let's evaluate your, your tactics. Because if you're being unproductive, should, should we rethink it? That's what I would hope. Because it's, it's today, I was like, I wonder who we're cancelling today. Who are we yelling at today and what are we yelling at them for? Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's got a bit much, man. Yeah. I know, I've seen you comment on with it. You there. You've gone into a few threads on it recently. I have, yeah. 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 Well, what do you think the solution is? I... Don't think there is an easy solution. I think it's something which will have to sort itself out over time. Um, people get polarized, especially on social media, and it doesn't matter what it is. You know, you go on. Um, so I'm in, I'm in a few different kind of Twitter circles, not just Bitcoin. You know, I'm on medical Twitter as well because I have an interest in neuroscience, and you know, I love seeing neuroscience type stuff. So I follow a bunch of neuroscientists, um, and there will be polarizing arguments that happen. You know, um, about the most ridiculous of things. Um, there was one, uh, I'm just trying to remember how, recently about um, a particular cranial nerve, whether it forms part of the central nervous system or the peripheral nervous system. And that turned into a fight. Do you have peripheral maximalists? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but, do, but I mean, yeah, it, it's, is it as... Is it very similar to what happens in our community, or is it different? So perhaps on medical Twitter, not so much, because you know, it tends to be medical professionals. But um, mm. I, I think you get it in any society. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in New Zealand where the argument is Ford cars or Holden cars. You know, it's either you're either a Ford person or a Holden person. You cannot be anything else. Um, you know, and if you like Ford, then the Holden people will hate you. And if you like Holden, the Ford people will hate you. Right. So I drove a Mazda. That's yeah. my dad. My dad drove a Mazda <laughs> all the way through. My dad loved yeah. Mazdas. He had like three of them. You but got I've got Mazda. Mazda. Yeah, it's just a, it's just this silly polarizing thing. It, it happens happens in societies. So, you know, and Twitter makes it worse. Social media makes it worse. Yeah. So I don't think there's going to be an easy solution for 
the Bitcoin world. I think it's something that will disappear over time as we get more people with different viewpoints being expressed. Um, when people can't force their own echo chambers as much, you know, sure, eventually you, know, you might get some people who block every single person who isn't 100% aligned with them, but now they're stuck in their echo chamber and it won't spread as much out of it. Yeah. So the more different viewpoints we have, the less we should see of it, but I don't think it'll ever go away entirely, and I think it's going to be with us for a long time, unfortunately. Yeah, like I said, I almost don't want to criticize the tactics. I almost want to just evaluate and say, is it productive? Yeah, I, I don't want to argue against toxic maximalism. Maybe it has a benefit that I'm not aware of. Maybe there's times when I've been a little bit toxic, yeah. and you now I'm a total hypocrite. I just want to know, is it productive? Because... I can't I go on Twitter now and it's just like fight, fight, fight. Ah, oh, is that like again? Really? Like, are we being the most productive we can be? And that's that's what I care about because I care about people understanding Bitcoin, people being able to use Bitcoin and um, and expanding the people to get to it. And is spending all these hours arguing over this shitcoin or this belief or that belief is that is that making us less productive and is that having a negative effect? If it is, I want to be away from it. Yeah, that's my simple view on it. Yeah, I, I think one of the big things there is um, often when you get into the discussion about it on Twitter, people say, ah, but you, you get perceived as a toxic maximalist because of this and this and this. And that's changing the discussion. We were talking about the toxicity and whether it's useful, not about whether somebody perceives me as being toxic. Like I'm sure somebody could say, ah, Ben, you used the word shitcoin earlier. Yes, I did, and I will continue to use that word. And if somebody wants to call that toxic, okay, they're calling me toxic. Um, mm. But that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about these toxic maximalists doing stuff. So, you know, um, you know, but also, yeah, fine, we can even have the conversation there. Is it productive to use the word shitcoin? I don't know. Right now, I don't care that much. I think they're a bigger fish to fry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Well, listen, this was, uh, this was an interesting conversation. Thank you. <laughs> There's things that you've given me to think about. Uh, things to you know, pause my thoughts on. There's uh, things I didn't 100% agree with you on. Um, but uh, interesting all the same. Do you want to send anyone to anywhere? Do you want to tell them where to follow you? Is there anything you're working on? So, um, yeah, I'm not uh, working on anything in particular. Anyone who finds my thoughts interesting, yeah, follow me on Twitter. It's just uh, Ben underscore Deval, D-E-W-A-A-L. Um, and, yeah, uh, you know, there's nothing particular going on at the moment, but I'm always interested in interesting discussions, especially about people who disagree with me, if they can disagree with me in a useful conversational kind of way and actually talk about stuff rather than just throwing insults. Awesome. Are you hungry? Do you want some lunch? Absolutely. Let's get some lunch. All right. Wrap. Thank you. Appreciate that, Ben. Okay. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Ben. It was a bit tricky at times. Some of his ideas just didn't really work for me, but I definitely felt I got something out of talking to him. Now, I'm sure a lot of you listening will have disagreed with what Ben had to say. However, in my view, the bigger picture is that Bitcoin is home for a wide range of views. It is literally for everyone. So if you've got any questions about this, you want to reach out to me, you can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right, have a great week, and I will see you all soon.